Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. I hope everybody enjoyed their Easter holiday. In fact, today is Easter Monday, so many parts of the world are still celebrating, including here in Puerto Rico, although we are still in the holiday of Passover, so hopefully everybody who celebrates Passover, myself included, is still enjoying that holiday. In fact, this year, uh, the first night of Passover coincided with Good Friday, so I guess a rare occasion uh, that unites the two religions. We generally end up celebrating both. The markets have been quiet around the holidays. I guess the big story today in the markets was the price of oil. Uh, crude oil up about a dollar sixty a barrel. We're now at sixty-five seventy-one per barrel. This is a new high for the the year today. I think the catalyst was the Trump administration announcing that they would be uh, withdrawing the exemption that allows certain countries, such as Japan, India, China, there's a number of countries that are currently buying oil from Iran. And they're doing this based on an exemption from our sanctions. And now we're saying that, okay, no more exemptions. Uh, If you buy oil from Iran, then you're going to get sanctioned. And generally what that means is the U.S. is going to shut you out of access to the dollar financial system, uh, wiring and using the resources of the Fed, which considering that most of the world still transacts internationally in U.S. dollars is a very, very uh, serious punishment that the U.S. is able to dole out uh, to any nation that does not do its bidding. Now, of course, you know, this obviously angers our trading partners who do not like being dictated to by the United States. They do not like the United States being able to tell them who they can and cannot do business with and to punish them uh, if they don't do what the United States says. Of course, this is all a function of the U.S. dollar being the reserve currency, which certainly gives nations uh, like China uh, or like Russia or you know any other nation uh, a incentive to try to move away from the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency, and also when it comes to oil, you know one of the reasons that the dollar has value and is accepted as the reserve currency is because it is the currency in which oil prices are denominated. You have all of these uh, OPEC nations pricing and accepting U.S. dollars in exchange for their oil. And so this is particularly problematic for the United States in trying to rock the boat on this issue. And in fact, initially, oil prices started to rise on the news, and then Trump came out or the administration backtracked a little bit and said that the nations that are currently using or taking advantage of this exemption or have the exemption, they are going to have uh, a year uh, in which to stop importing oil from Iran. So they don't have to stop right away. 
but they can they have a little bit of time to get used to it. Meanwhile, they're saying, oh, don't worry, the extra oil is going to come out of Saudi Arabia or it's going to come somewhere. But obviously, if Iranian oil is not on the market, then you are reducing the supply of oil. And if countries that are now buying from uh, Iran are going to buy from another country, well, then they're simply going to have to buy oil that otherwise could have been bought uh, you know, from another seller. And so you're diminishing the supply and the price is going to go up. And the Trump administration should probably get its priorities straight uh, because if it wants interest rates to stay low, and I believe that they're going to stay low at this point regardless, but if, you know, they think the Fed is actually being honest, right? The only real reason that the Fed has basically put out there for why it is now being patient why it is not raising interest rates is because the oil price is too low. They're not worried about inflation being too high because oil prices are so low. Well, I've mentioned on this podcast that we're already 40%, more than 40% higher than we were the last time the Fed raised rates. But if you look at the price of oil right now, there have only been two rate hikes that the Fed has made where the price of oil was higher than it is right now. Right. All the rate hikes we had in 2017 and uh, 2018 or the, the one we had in 2016, the one we had in 2015, all but on two of those occasions, the oil price was lower than it is today. Yet the Fed is now not hiking rates based on the fact that it says oil prices are too low. And if we go up about another dollar, dollar and a half, which we could easily do this week, then there'll only be one time. Uh, when oil prices were higher on the day the Fed hiked rates, and that would have been in September of last year. And of course, we can easily take out that high if we finally see the value of the dollar starting to fall. I mean, the dollar is still holding in there. You know, the dollar index is above 97. As I speak, it was a little bit softer today. But the strong dollar is what is keeping the price of oil from moving up even faster than it already is. And, you know, Donald Trump is out there saying we need more quantitative easing, saying the Fed should be cutting interest rates. Well, if oil prices are rising, the Fed should be hiking rates. I mean, by its own admission, it's holding off on rates because low oil prices are keeping inflation at bay, keeping inflation below 2%. Well, if oil prices really spike, Well, that's another reason for the Fed not to be patient and to hike rates. But if the president wants the Fed to be cutting interest rates and doing QE, imagine how much higher the price of oil would be. And, you know, he's put out several tweets complaining about rising oil prices, bashing OPEC nations for rising oil prices. Well, if he doesn't want oil prices to rise, why is he taking actions that are going to effectively cause the price of oil to go up. It doesn't make any sense that Trump would be admonishing the Fed for uh, being too tight and for not printing enough money and claiming there's no inflation, but also trying to take actions that would cause oil prices to rise and therefore cause the inflation measures that the government uses to, uh, to reveal a higher number. And of course, rising oil prices are going to affect the U.S. economy. You know, I mean, we, we got some uh, last week, we got some retail sales numbers that were actually stronger than expected. But the biggest uh, part of the strength was coming from gasoline. I mean, consumers are spending more money for gasoline, but that's not because they're just driving a lot more. They're just paying more for the gas. And so that's already going to have the effect of slowing down the economy. And, you know, we're getting more evidence, too, that the economy is slowing down. We're going to get a GDP number for Q1. On, uh, on Friday. But look at the housing data that came out. Some of it came out today. Some of it came out on Friday while the U.S. markets were closed. So nobody really paid attention to it. But the number we got on Friday was housing starts and they collapsed. I mean, we had the lowest number, the worst uh, drop since 2011. So the housing starts were way, way below what the consensus was. And then today we got existing home sales and they were down again. I mean, now we're down uh, year over year for 13 consecutive months. I mean, look at a chart. I mean, obviously this sector uh, is in a lot of trouble. The housing sector is rapidly contracting. And this, despite the fact that mortgage rates have moved down quite a bit 
in the last quarter or so thanks to the Fed's about face, right? Had the Federal Reserve not thrown this uh, life preserver to the housing market in the form of no more rate hikes. And not only that, but we're going to end our quantitative tightening program over the summer. That had the effect of dropping mortgage rates by more than a half a percent. And that's a big number. And of course, uh, mortgage rates are a primary factor in affordability of housing. And it it is a big factor in whether or not existing homes are going to sell and whether or not builders are going to build new homes because they have to believe that they have a customer who can afford to buy. So if these data points are this weak with mortgage rates falling because the Fed did the about face, imagine how much weaker these numbers would be right now had the Fed not done that. If the Fed was still posturing that it was going to keep raising rates and if quantitative tightening was still on autopilot, imagine how much worse these numbers would be. Now, the numbers are going to get worse anyway, right? It's just taking a little bit longer. The Fed has bought a little bit more time with this uh, about face. Now, also last week, we did get a couple of uh, important IPOs. I mean, important just to kind of gauge the speculative uh, fervor in the markets. We got the highly anticipated Pinterest uh, IPO. And of course, maybe some people were wondering, wondering, you know, was this going to be the pin uh, that pricks the bubble. And so far, no. So far, uh, Pinterest symbol is P-I-N-S, pins, uh, has been well received. Uh, the market gapped up after the IPO. And in fact, it was up again today. So the people who bought Pinterest on the IPO, I think it was around 18 or 19 bucks. Again, I forget the exact price, but it closed at $24.99. So, so far, uh, Pinterest has been a success An even bigger success was a company called Zoom Video Communications. Now, I think Zoom actually makes a profit, which uh, makes it unique among uh, IPOs that the company actually makes a profit, Uh, although I'm not sure it's a very large one relative to its market cap. But the fact that it makes a profit at all uh, made made this IPO very special. And the stock, I think, had a 60, 70 percent pop. And it held on to that. In fact, it rallied again today. It made a new high today, up another 5.5% on Zoom. But an interesting story and one that really shows you how crazy uh, the uh, speculative mentality is in the market, thanks to the cheap money that is uh, on tap by the Federal Reserve. There is another uh, penny stock, you know, Bolton Board type stock. I don't even know if it's even an operating business anymore. Uh, But it has a name similar. It's Zoom Technologies. And the symbol, Z-O-O-M, right? A lot of people, you figure a company like Zoom is going public, you might think that it would go public with the symbol Z-O-O-M. And I think some smart speculators uh, made that decision about a month ago when they started gobbling up shares of this company for fractions of a penny, right? That's where this stock was trading uh, a couple of months ago. You, you could have bought shares of Z-O-O-M for... One cent a share, a half a cent a share, uh, you know, under a penny a share. And the stock rose as high as six bucks on the day of the Zoom IPO on a lot of volume. I mean, a huge gain in the stock. Why did it go up? For the only reason that people mistakenly bought it. I mean, people wanted to hop on to Zoom and they just bought the ticker which is very reminiscent of what was going on during the dot-com bubble because, you know, companies that simply sounded like the companies that were going public, the stocks were getting bid up. And in fact, a lot of people might have bought Zoom, not by mistake. They might have bought it betting that other people would make the mistake. So we really don't know how much of the buying was, was done by people who actually thought they were buying the real Zoom and bought the fake Zoom, or how many people knew they were buying the fake Zoom, but they simply bought it because they were counting on somebody else to not know the difference and buy the fake Zoom. But, you know, this type of, you know, sizzle and no stake, I mean, people just buying symbols, right? Not even really caring about the underlying company. Just, oh, it's going up. I got to get on board. Again, this is the type of speculative investor behavior that generally happens when markets are near tops, not when markets are near bottoms. 
You know, when it comes to to the major averages, we continue to see the Russell 2000 underperforming both the Nasdaq and the S&P. And this has been an ongoing divergence, which really flies in the face of the conventional wisdom and certainly to uh, what's uh, what the Fed is saying, that the economic problems uh, are in the United States. And it's not simply about weakness overseas. And that's what's you know worrying the Fed. The markets are worried about weakness in the U.S. because the Russell 2000 is the most domestically focused of all the indexes. Uh, That's the one that has the least percentage of global sales, right? They're smaller companies that derive their revenue uh, from domestic markets. And those are the stocks that are having the biggest trouble. Uh, And so that would indicate that the problem is not abroad. The problem is right here. But that's uh, something that everybody wants to continue to overlook. And as long as that's happening, look, we continue to get a lackluster performance out of the precious metals market. Gold's still about 1275, uh, not moving up. The gold stocks themselves continue to go down. Even on days now where the price of gold is relatively flat like it was today, you're seeing uh, more selling in the gold stocks as people are basically giving up on the idea that there's anything to worry about. And so they no longer uh, feel the price of gold is going up. In fact, I think that might be one of the reasons that you're getting a bid in the cryptocurrencies. Uh, Bitcoin now, as I'm talking, you know, back on above 5,300 uh, per Bitcoin. I think one of the reasons that maybe you're finding a bid in the cryptos is once again, you know, gold looked like it was taken off. It got up, you know, well above 1300 and now it's disappointing again. Maybe, well, you see real gold doesn't work. So let's buy this so-called digital alternative, what I believe is fool's gold. And so maybe the fact that gold is weakened has caused some people who might otherwise be buying gold to be buying cryptos. But if I'm right on that, if we do see another big move up or when we do see another big move up in the price of gold, uh, then the appetite for cryptos uh, might uh, might diminish. You know, one uh, particular uh, group of stocks that was showing some weakness last week were the tobacco names. And uh, one of the reasons, or probably the catalyst for that, is a bill by uh, Mitch McConnell that's going to be coming out. And the bill is going to raise the age uh, at which people are allowed to uh, smoke, or at least where businesses are allowed to sell cigarettes, right? They're going to raise the age nationally to to 21. And so obviously, if uh, fewer people are legally allowed to buy cigarettes, then that could be bad for the cigarette companies who are selling uh, selling these cigarettes. And so the stocks went down. You know, interestingly enough, you know, even the tobacco stocks that don't sell any cigarettes in America, those prices went down as well. But I actually want to talk a little bit about the you know the legality of, of this of, of a federal law that basically says you have to be 21 before you can uh, sell cigarettes or buy cigarettes or before you know businesses can can sell cigarettes because it's obviously or maybe it's not obvious to everybody but certainly to me that such a law if it's actually passed by Congress and signed by the president would be unconstitutional you know where in the Constitution, does it say that the U.S. government gets to decide what is the proper age for people to consume a legal product, right? If you remember, uh, or you don't remember, but you know from reading history that once upon a time, we had an amendment to the U.S. Constitution that prohibited the sale, transportation, or production of alcoholic beverages, The 18th Amendment reads that one year from the ratification of this article, the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors within the importation thereof into or the exportation thereof from the United States and all of its territories subject to the jurisdiction thereof for beverage purposes is hereby prohibited. So when the government back in in 1917, when the government wanted to make it illegal for businesses to sell alcohol or manufacture alcohol or transport alcohol, they couldn't just pass a law because they had no constitutional authority to do that. They actually had to amend the Constitution. And they had to amend it because they still had some respect for what the Constitution meant. Although, you know, one interesting thing about the 18th Amendment, and although maybe not interesting, a disturbing thing about it, is that it was the only amendment or the First Amendment that applied to individuals, right? It was an amendment telling individual people and businesses what they couldn't do. 
Before that, the Constitution was all about telling the federal government what it couldn't do, right? or more precisely, telling the federal government what it could do and telling the states what it couldn't do. So it was there to restrict the powers of government, not to restrict the individual liberties, right? The liberties of individual people, right? So this amendment applied to the people of the United States, not the government of the United States. So I don't even think it really had a part uh, in the Constitution because the Constitution was not there to tell Americans what they can and cannot do. It was there to tell the state governments what they couldn't do and to tell the federal government what they could do, meaning everything else they couldn't do. So it was, a, it was a bad precedent to even have this amendment. But the fact that they knew that they needed it, right? Why can they do this now? Because if the Congress can simply say nobody who's 18, 19, 20 years old can buy cigarettes, well, I mean, if they, then why didn't they do it back then? If they could simply outlaw the sale of, uh, of cigarettes, then they can outlaw the sale of alcohol. Now, maybe you're saying, well, they didn't eliminate completely. Well, if you can set the age at 21, I mean, you could set the age anywhere you want. You could say you have to be 91 to uh, to buy cigarettes. I mean, how many people over 91 are going to buy cigarettes? In fact, not that many smokers probably lived to 91 anyway. I mean, if you're smoking that long, you probably got lung cancer. So if you're going to say that you have to be 91 to buy cigarettes, you're pretty much banning uh, cigarettes. So if they needed an amendment to do it 100 years ago, why don't they need one now? I mean, it's the same Constitution, right? Wouldn't they need an amendment? And remember, too, if you look at the language, the, uh, the 18th Amendment didn't make it illegal to drink alcohol. You just couldn't manufacture it, sell it, or transport it, right? Which obviously made it very hard because if you didn't have any alcohol, how would you get it to your house? I mean, somebody would have to transport it there, you know, and you couldn't make it yourself, right? Because if you had a, a, a still in your backyard or in your bathtub, that was illegal. But if you loaded up on alcohol, and I'm sure a lot of people did this as soon as this amendment was passed because it gave you a year before it actually you know, went into effect. And I'm sure there was a brisk business. A lot of people were, were probably filling up their cellars with wine, buying all sorts of alcohol legally and storing it. Because remember, alcohol doesn't go bad. In fact, it gets better with age in, it, generally. So people were probably loading up on a lot of alcohol, which they could legally consume after the, uh, the 18th Amendment went into effect because you were allowed to drink it. Right. You just had to drink it at your house. You couldn't drive it to somebody else's house because you couldn't transport it. But if you had company to come over for dinner, you could serve them alcohol as long as you didn't make it yourself or buy it from somebody who made it. Right. It couldn't be transported in. So they must have known that even that type of an amendment might not have even been allowed for you to regulate that behavior that way. But they tried to regulate it as some type of commerce, right? And we're using the Commerce Clause and we're putting in this amendment. But they knew that the Commerce Clause itself wasn't enough, that they were going to have to put something into the Constitution that actually said that they could limit the consumption of alcohol. Well, that's what they're doing, or that's what Mitch McConnell wants to do with tobacco. He wants to say that 19 and 20-year-olds are prohibited, right? It's prohibition uh, from buying tobacco or, or businesses can't sell people tobacco. Now, maybe if we didn't have the 26th Amendment, right, which lowered the voting age down to 18, you could have maybe made an argument that, well, you you know, if it was still 21, the government maybe could pass a law and say, look, people under 21, they're minors, right? They're not full citizens. And so we have laws on the books to protect minors. Uh, but then again, still, those are laws that are in the province of the states. The states have the ability to protect minors. And by the way, there are plenty of states right now where you can't buy cigarettes until you're 21. I mean, those state laws are already on the book. So the states that want to go in that direction have already done that. And there's nothing in the Constitution that says they can't do that. Because remember, if the, if the states aren't denied the power to do something, they can do it. But there's nothing that gives the federal government the, the authority to set an age for, for buying anything, right? And they certainly can't um, say that people of any age, right, they can't buy something. They can't outlaw alcohol. They can't outlaw tobacco. They can't outlaw marijuana, any of this stuff. None of this stuff should uh, be legally outlawed uh, by, by the United States government. But the fact of the matter is now 
based on how little respect we have for the Constitution, the government feels that they could just pass this law without amending the Constitution, and they have the right to determine what age people should be able to legally uh, buy a pack of cigarettes or what age, you know, how old must you be before a business can legally sell you a pack of cigarettes. Now, of course, some people might say, hey, Peter, well, what about the drinking age, right? Isn't there a federal drinking age of 21? No, there's not. There is no federal law that says you have to be 21 to drink. All the individual 50 states on their own have done that. Now, Puerto Rico is not a state. The drinking age is still 18 in Puerto Rico. It's not 21 because there is no federal law. If there was a federal law, it would probably apply to Puerto Rico. But there is no federal law. So Puerto Rico still has 18 as the drinking age. But all the other states have 21. Now, why is that? Well, what happened was, and I forget exactly when they did this, but the federal government wanted all the states to raise their uh, drinking ages to 21. And I think at the time, the you know the government, the politicians that were in office at the time, knew that they had no legal authority, no constitutional authority to do that. Right? They'd have to get an amendment to the Constitution because if they had to amend the Constitution to say that nobody could drink, well, they had to amend it again if they wanted to say, okay, nobody under 21 could drink, right? Because these are legal citizens, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, right? And in fact, the, the, Mitch McConnell wants to make an exception to the 18. You can, meaning that if you're in the military, so if you're in the Army, or if you're in the Navy, if you're in the Marines, whatever, then you can buy cigarettes at 19 or 20 or 21, right? I guess supposedly we're saying, look, if you're old enough to fight, then you're old enough to smoke. But it makes no difference. If we're concerned about the health of young people, well, wouldn't we be concerned about the health of our members of the military? But then again, it might be completely hypocritical to say, look, you know, we're going to send you into a war zone where you might get killed, but we don't want you to smoke because we're worried about you getting cancer, you know, 50 years from now uh, when you're risking your life right now. So I guess they saw the absurdity of sending people into battle where they might die, but say, hey, you can't enjoy a cigarette. Well, you know, before you go to war. So maybe that had more to do with it than, you know, the fact that you're old enough to fight, you're old enough uh, to smoke or maybe make your own decisions. But the government at least knew that when it wanted to raise the drinking age, it had no authority to do it. So what did they do? How did the U.S. government get around the Constitution? Well, what they did is they used the power of the purse, right? They have all this revenue sharing where, you know, the federal government gets revenue and then they share it with the states. And one of these revenue sharing schemes has to do with the highway funds and federal highway funds. And basically what the government said was that any state that does not raise its drinking age to 21, if you don't do that, then you're not going to get your share of the federal highway funds. Now, of course, all the states, they want that money. Right? They don't want to you know, miss out on that federal money. But of course, it's not really federal money. The money belonged to the citizens of the states. But it was sent to the federal government. Now they're hoping to get some of it back. And of course, in order to continue to get that money back, all of the states just voted to increase their uh, drinking age to 21. In fact, that's how the federal government got the 55 mile an hour speed limit. Same way, right? They didn't uh, pass a law that said that the speed limit was 55, I mean, that probably would have been unconstitutional too. Now, they might have tried to claim it was interstate commerce, but, you know, they said the law was 55 even on highways that didn't go interstate, right? You, you couldn't drive more than 55 anywhere. But the government did the same thing there. They didn't pass a law. They told the states, you either lower your speed limit down to 55 or you don't get your highway funds. Now, as far as I'm concerned, this is still unconstitutional. Right. If the federal government doesn't have the constitutional authority to do something, if that's not its power, then it can't extort the states into doing it. Like this is a federal law by extortion. And what the Supreme Court should do is look beyond what is actually happening to the motivation, to the rationale. If the federal government is trying to get around its constitutional limitations, if it's trying to exercise authority it does not have, and it's using uh, you know, the, the, the purse, if it's using revenue sharing, uh, then it has to say this is unconstitutional. Now, first of all, I don't even think we should have revenue sharing. I don't like the fact 
that the federal government takes money away from the states and then gives it back. I mean, all these programs should be unconstitutional anyway. But if we're going to have these type of programs, we cannot let the federal government usurp authority and get around the restrictions of the Constitution because it has all this money. It can't simply do whatever it's not constitutionally authorized to do by bribing you or by extorting you. Oh, you're not going to get this money back unless you do this or unless you do that. In other words, you have the federal government, by virtue of its power of taxation, doing all sorts of things that the Constitution prohibits it from doing or does not authorize it to do, which means it's de facto been prohibited. So the federal government should not be able to use that to get around what is clearly you know, not authorized by the Constitution. And the Supreme Court should, should stand up for the Constitution and not let the government pull these tricks. But the interesting thing is now they don't even feel it's necessary to pull the tricks. They don't have to pull the wool over anyone's eye. They don't have to, you know, come up with some crazy scheme. They basically think there's so little respect for the Constitution now that they can just do whatever they want. They don't even have to try to find a way to hide it. They don't have to find a way to get get around the Constitution and know that the Supreme Court will let them get away with it. The Constitution has such little meaning that they don't even need the pretense. You know, of course, the other problem with this whole idea that we're going to, you know, ban, uh, you know, the, the, the legal sale of cigarettes uh, to 19-year-olds and 20-year-olds, look, you already have to be 18 to buy cigarettes. And there's plenty of kids who are 12 and 13 and 14 who are smoking cigarettes. I mean, where'd they get them? So obviously, just because you have a law that says you can't sell to minors doesn't mean they're not going to get the cigarettes. But what is going to happen if you do raise the age in which you can legally buy cigarettes to 21, you'll simply raise the age by which people who want to smoke are going to have to buy their cigarettes illegally. That's what's going to happen. And when people are buying their cigarettes illegally, who benefits? Organized crime, right? The mafia, gangs, I mean, whoever is dealing illegally, selling uh, contraband or selling products uh, illegally. And so that's going to happen. I mean, the cigarettes are still going to get bought. And you know what's going to happen, too? As you empower the uh, the gangs by increasing their, their market share, right? Now, because the gangs now, they're only selling to people who are under 18. But now if you say you got to be 21 to buy legally, now you have a bigger market for the gangs, right? They, they have a bigger clientele. Now you're giving them more power because there's more money. They have a bigger share of the smoking market. And when that happens and you have more illegal sales going on, they don't ask for any ID. So I bet that the number of 15-year-olds and 14-year-olds who smoke will actually be higher when we raise the smoking age to 21 than now at 18. That's what my feeling is going to be. And of course, then you actually have the other effect, the unintended consequence of making smoking that much cooler, right? Because, you know, kids always want to do what they're not allowed to do, right? I want, I, they want to be a rebel. They want to be cool, right? So if it's illegal to smoke, well, then I'm going to smoke. That's how cool I am. Look, I'm doing something I shouldn't do. I mean, go back to prohibition. I mean, drinking was mo- so much hipper when it was illegal, right? The speakeasies were so much more popular than bars. In fact, that's part of the irony of prohibition. Apart, apart from making the mafia rich or, you know, organized crime, you know, Al Capone, whoever was around back then, but apart from financing organized crime, right? And making, you know, Joe Kennedy rich, um, more people drank, right? There were more speakeasies in New York than bars. Alcohol consumption in the States went up during prohibition, the opposite of what those teetotalers had in mind. So they not only enriched the criminals and created all this crime, but they actually had more people drinking. And so, you know, all this stuff just always backfires. So, yeah, the government wants to pass these laws to have fewer young people smoking, and that they're going to end up with more young people smoking. And, you know, they also want to crack down even harder on vaping. And to the extent that they're able to keep people from vaping, and so they smoke instead, I mean, the vaping isn't nearly as bad for you as the smoking. So instead of, you know, encouraging this as a substitute, they're trying to clamp down on that even more. But, you know, I want to talk about one more stupid thing that the government is, well, not actually doing yet, but what a politician is proposing. And this is Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas, uh, who is a Democratic candidate for president. And she has been talking about her wealth tax, right, how we're going to soak the rich and have this tax on uh, the millionaires and billionaires. But 
Now she's actually got a plan for what she would do with the money, right? Which is the important part, because first we're going to steal the money, but now you have to tell the voters how they're going to get their piece of the action, right? Because that's what they're voting for. Well, what her new plan is, is that she's going to use this money that she steals from the uh, the millionaires and billionaires to forgive, cancel out the existing student loan, right? Not basically say that you have a moratorium on payments but basically the loan is gone it's it's forgiven uh, and the money is no longer owed and doesn't have to be repaid and the debt forgiveness is not going to be a taxable event right so normally if somebody forgives a debt the amount of the debt that's forgiven would be taxable income to you but what a warrant is to say no all this is a hundred percent tax-free we're going to just forgive your your debts. Now, they're not going to forgive everybody's debts. She says she's going to forgive the debts of 95% of the people and it's going to be based on your income. So, if you if your household income is under $100,000, then whatever you owe, no matter how much that amount is, right? It's all forgiven. So, if you owe 50,000, if you owe 150,000, if your household income is less than $100,000, you own nothing. Now, it doesn't have the specifics like over how many years. Like, is it just that year or do you have to go backwards a few years? Do you average it out? I don't know. But one thing seems clear to me is that once the loan is forgiven, it's gone. So it doesn't matter how much money you make in subsequent years, right? So if your income goes, let's say you're making 80000 a year. And so, you know, the, the debt is forgiven. If the next year you start making 500000 a year, doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't come back. The debt is gone. It's off the books, right? So this is a massive uh, amount of, uh, you know, debt forgiveness. And so it starts to phase out, though. If you make between 100000 and 250000 the amount of the forgiveness, you know, phases out. So instead of getting 100% forgiveness, maybe 90% will be forgiven or 80% or whatever it is. And then if you get to more than $250,000 a year, well, then none of it is forgiven and you have to pay it all back. But again, she doesn't specify, you know, what the time period is that your income has to be that amount. Because one thing's going to happen, whatever the government sets up as that criteria, everybody's going to game the system, right? Everybody's going to try to arrange their household income so that it's low enough to qualify for as much debt forgiveness as possible. I mean, maybe even some people will get divorced in order to qualify, right? Because it's based on household income. And so you're combining uh, both spouses. If you have two people who are married and they are both... Uh, dealing with debt, they may have to get divorced in order for both of them to have all of their debt forgiven. But people will easily do that if it means you can get rid of $100,000 or $150,000 of debt. Sure, you know, you can get a divorce. You can always get remarried once the debt is forgiven. Or if you were planning on getting married, you could just postpone that decision until after your college debts uh, are forgiven. Uh, but also, you know, the other I ironic part about it is basically you know, she admits that the vast majority of people are going to have all their debt forgiven, right? Because a lot of people, you're only making, you know, 40, 50,000 a year. So even if they're married, their combined household income is still under 100,000. But it really shows you what a waste of money these college degrees are. Because you've got all these people with college degrees that have lots of debt that are working for 30, 35, $40,000 a year. I mean, why? I mean, those are the type of jobs that people should do who never went to college. I mean, the old people who go to college should be earning several hundred thousand dollars a year. I mean, that's the way it used to be that before the government got involved in encouraging all these kids to go to college and subsidizing it. People people didn't go to college. People people went to, to high school. The high school degree used to be very valuable. Right. It used to mean something. Now that means nothing because everybody graduates, even if you if you can't pass, they they pass everybody. Doesn't matter if you learn nothing. They don't flunk people in high school. Now everybody graduates. So they made the high school diploma meaningless. Now everybody goes to college. And because everybody goes to college, well, that's meaningless as well. But this thing is going to be a disaster when they forgive all this. And then, of course, obviously, if they're going to maintain that policy in the future, right, what a moral hazard. 
right? If you know that your loans are going to be forgiven as long as you earn less than $100,000 a year after you graduate, which is a lot of people that major in liberal arts, right? They don't earn that much money. It's almost like the less you earn, the more debt you're going to have forgiven. And of course, if you're going to major in some of this, if you're planning on going into social work or some other type of occupation that doesn't have a high salary, hell, you can pay whatever you want to go to college. I mean, you know, sky's the limit. And then the colleges will know all this. I mean, they'll, you know, the, the prices are going to go through the roof if this moral hazard, because if colleges were able to charge this much when the students thought they'd have to repay the money that they borrowed to go to college, imagine how much more the colleges can charge the students when they can tell the students, hey, don't worry about it. You're not going to have to repay any of this money, right? It's just all going to be forgiven, which is also the second part of what uh, – Elizabeth Warren is proposing here is that not only is she going to cancel the outstanding debt, uh, which means it's all, you know, it's all paid back by somebody, right? When they cancel the debt, that means the taxpayer is stuck with the tab, right? Because either the federal government has to pay back the, 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 um, the banks who made the loans, right? Because the banks are still going to get their money. So now the taxpayers have to come up with it rather than now, of course, she says it's all going to come from this extra tax on billionaires, but they're not going to raise anywhere near as much money from that unconstitutional wealth tax, uh, you know, in order to fund this thing. So it's going to come from a lot of people who have a lot less money than that. But also a lot of the loans were actually issued directly by the taxpayer. You know, ever since Obama, uh, the government has been loaning money directly to students. We cut out the middleman. And so the taxpayer directly loses because the taxpayer doesn't get paid back the money that was that was loaned. But the other part of this is going forward, they want to make all tuition at public universities and colleges, right? You know, free, tuition free, guaranteeing that anybody who wants to go to college, whether it's two years or four years, anybody who wants to go can go, major in whatever they want, and it's all going to be free. And according to Elizabeth Warren, I guess the federal government is going to pick up half the cost, and the state government is going to pick up half the cost, which, of course, means the taxpayers pick up 100% of the cost because the taxpayers send taxes to the states and the taxpayers send taxes to the federal government. So it's not that the governments are covering it. It's the people. It's the citizens who are paying. They're just some of the money they're sending to the state government and some of the money they're sending to the federal government. But it all has to come from the same source. And believe me, if anybody believes that college is expensive now, and of course it is expensive now, but if college is expensive now when people have to pay for it, even if they do it with money they borrow from the government, could you imagine how much more expensive education is going to be when it's free? When no one even gives a damn, when nobody is even remotely spending their own money. So if Elizabeth Warren's proposal were to become law, the cost of education would skyrocket even faster than it's already been skyrocketing. You would take that curve and you would accelerate it even more. And of course, you would take the value of it, the college degree and debase it even more, right? That's the that's the unfortunate reality when government gets involved. They make the college degree that much more expensive, yet that much less valuable. That, that That's what they accomplish, because obviously everybody will go, right? I mean, I'm sure there are some people today who are not going to college because they don't think it's worth the money, right? Even if they can borrow the money, they don't want to pay it back, right? They don't want to deal with it. But if they know that it's free, they're never going to, it's not going to cost anything, right? They're not going to have to pay anything. Well, what the hell? Why not go, right? I mean, if it's free, you might as well go, right? And then, of course, I mean, I think people have even less of a motivation to do well. Because once you're paying for college, well, I don't want to waste my money. Let me just show up at class. Let me actually try to learn something. Because after all, this is costing me money, right? So I, I should try to get some value for my money. But if everybody gets the college degree for nothing, then that's what it's worth. People will know. And so people will have even less incentive to actually get their money's worth because they paid nothing. They don't have to get anything out of it. It's just having a good time, biding their time, a rite of passage. So even more people are going to go to college, which means we're going to waste even more money sending people who probably shouldn't have even graduated high school and now having them go to college. And basically what we're going to do is we're going to make college like K through 12. I mean, we might as well call it K through, you know, your your bachelor's degree. That's the whole thing. And then, of course, you know, if you want to 
differentiate yourself, obviously, you're going to have to get a master's degree or a PhD, or you're going to have to go to a private college, which is probably going to end up charging even more money because who the hell is going to want to go to these uh, state colleges? But again, the cost is going to go out of control. And then the governments are going to have to get even more in control of these uh, colleges in order to prevent uh, prices from skyrocketing. You see, when the government's not involved, the free market prevents that from happening. But once the government takes over, the free market is out. And of course, then, you know, the free market always gets blamed for the problems of government. I mean, what Elizabeth Warren should actually be advocating is to get the government out of the business of making student loans in the first place. I mean, I mean, the government should just get out of education. That should be number one. The first thing they should do is say, look, no more government loans for college. No more guaranteed loans. That's it. If you want to go to college, then pay for it. That's it. That's what the government should do. And if that were to happen, right, the cost of a college degree would implode immediately. Immediately. The cost of college would go way down. Look, I've talked about that uh, on this podcast before, right? My father, I talk about him a lot, Erwin Schiff. He went to University of Connecticut, UConn. His parents didn't have a lot of money, right? He always told me he didn't know if he was upper lower class or lower middle class, right? But they knew they were, you know, relatively poor. Uh, but my dad went to college. His his parents didn't give him any money for college. So he went and got a job. He worked summers. He waited tables at, you know, resorts, I think in the Catskills uh, over the summer. And he made enough money working summers to pay all of his college costs, tuition, uh, you know, books, board, whatever he did, he, he covered it all, working summers, and he graduated with a degree and no debt. And that was not unique. I mean, most of my father's friends worked their way through college. In fact, that used to be a saying, I'm working my way through college. A lot of people worked their way through college. There was nothing wrong with that. See, the politicians, when they initially wanted the students to vote for them, they said, you know, You shouldn't have to work your way through college. We should arrange loans where you don't have to have a job and and split your time between working and studying. We want to arrange it so that you could just study and you won't have to get a job. We'll loan you all the money you need and then you pay it back later on after you graduate. That was the appeal. And students said, hey, that sounds great. If I vote for you, I'm not going to have to work. right? I'm I'm going to be able to enjoy my summers. Instead of having a job, I'm just going to take a vacation and the government's going to loan me all this money it's all going to be great. Well, look how it turned out, right? So yes, people in my dad's generation, they had to work while they went to college. Big deal. Now you have to work twice as hard when you get out of college because you're paying off a mountain of debt, right? So I think students were better off before all these loans uh, uh, enabled the colleges to jack up tuition. So if the government got out of the student loan business, whether directly or indirectly, right, just completely out of it, the colleges would have to slash their prices. Otherwise, they wouldn't have a business, right? If nobody can afford to buy your product, what do you do? You either go out of business or you find a way to make your product cheaper. And that's exactly what the colleges would do. They would start cutting out the fat. I mean, believe me, there's lots of fat in there. And the free market, they're all going to be trying to see who can offer the best deal, who can get their tuition to be the lowest. Now, it's most likely that not as many people would go to college under this system as they're going now. And that would be a good thing because I think a lot of people who are going to college shouldn't be going to college. They're wasting their time. They're wasting money. How about if we restore the value of a high school degree? How about if we get more excellence in high school, stop promoting people who can't pass? You know, if you can't do the work, if you're in ninth grade and you can't pass your subjects, then you don't go to the 10th grade. You stay in ninth grade until you can pass. And, you know, after three or four years, if you're still in the ninth grade, you know, maybe you'll get the message that academics isn't your thing, right? Forget it. You're not even going to graduate high school. Learn a trade. Go working, Right. And of course, we should make it easier for young people to acquire skills on the job, get rid of the minimum wage law, get rid of occupational licensing, all sorts of uh, employment laws that make it so much more difficult for young people to get jobs because they make it harder for companies to hire people without skills and train them. So let's have more people uh, getting skills. Let's let's restore the value of a high school diploma so that fewer people actually have to go on to college. And let's save college for, you know, the very cream of the crop, people who are excellent 
and academics and who really are going to benefit from the college experience. And believe me, in a free market, the price of that experience is going to be a lot less than it is right now. And the students would be able to uh, pay for it. You know, the irony of it, of course, too, is if we're going to tax the wealth. See, Elizabeth Warren wants to tax wealth so that we can let everybody go to college for free. Well, if the point of college is to get a better job, right, to make yourself more employable, to, you know, become smarter and learn more so you have more job opportunities, where do job opportunities come from? They come from wealth, right? When people get out of college and they want to get a job, the reason that there's employers is because of wealth, right? That's where jobs come from. Because in order to get a job, you need an employer to write you a paycheck, But not only does the employer have to write you a paycheck, he has to supply you with capital. He needs to supply you with tools that you don't have, right? Equipment that you don't have, like an office to work, all sorts of things. Where does all that stuff come from? It comes from wealth, right? It comes from capital investment that's financed by saving. That is wealth. And so the more wealth we have, the more employment opportunities that we're going to have. Now, if we diminish wealth with the wealth tax, and that is the goal, right? The actual stated goal of the wealth tax is to diminish wealth, right? They're trying to narrow the gap between how much wealth the top people have and everybody else. And so the way they want to do that is they want to make the people who have wealth less wealthy, right? And then we'll have a a shorter gap. Well, if you are destroying wealth on purpose, you are destroying employment opportunities at the same time, right? So now we want to graduate all these kids from college, right? Spend all this money educating kids. And now when they graduate, because we wasted all this money and and basically destroyed wealth in order to fund it, when they finally get out with these worthless degrees, there's all there's fewer employment opportunities available uh, because they you know, of the way we funded their waste of a college education. But this, again, this is how the government works. Every single thing that the government does backfires, right? They can't do anything right. Yet you've got this appeal of socialism where you turn over more and more uh, power and authority and responsibility to an institution that has already proven its complete incompetence. Anything, anything the government tries to do the opposite is achieved, right? Yet these idiots, right, want to put the government in greater uh, roles of greater responsibility. They want to turn over more and more of our economy to these imbeciles, to these idiots, right? Rather than allowing the most productive system, right, the free market capitalist system is the most prosperous economic system ever devised. It has created the most wealth, it has done more to lift the living standards of average people and poor people than any other system yet devised. Yet these idiots want to destroy that and empower government when every single example of government has been a failure, not just around the world where they go full-on socialist, but everything our government has tried to do. All these well-intentioned government programs have always backfired. And here again, the ultimate irony When you have these politicians out there campaigning about how terrible it is that we have all these student loans. And I mentioned this on one of my last podcasts having to do with these hearings where they were questioning the bankers, right? Uh, Where um, Maxine Waters was yelling at the bankers, what are you going to do about the student loans? Where did the students get the money? Why were these loans made? The only reason that students borrowed all this money was because of government. But for the government, there would be no student loan problem, right? And now, what is the solution to a problem that was created by government? Well, we need even more government, right? If that's not insanity, right? The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And that is exactly what we're doing. We are a a nation that has clearly gone mad.